I began this week on Monday in the hospital before a, for a very good reason. I was there visiting a, a brand new baby, the, the, newest, uh, the newest member of, of our church, a beautiful little baby girl that actually was born last week and was a little sick, had some complications, so I had to go back in, Marlo Jones. But I began this week with, I mean, with a newborn baby that wasn't even three days old on Monday. That's how my week began. And I ended my week yesterday, uh, literally the last bit of ministry I did before I settled into my couch to, to watch football all day long. Um, I had my hand on the head of a casket that was getting ready to be lowered into the ground as I read the 23rd Psalm and prayed with the family. Started my week with brand new life. Ended my week with a life that was over. And I thought as I reflected on those two things this week, I thought, you know, we're all, we're all born and we're all going to die. But what are we going to do in between those two moments that makes life count? You know, the little baby I was with in the hospital who'd been sick for a few days, who, you know, God bless her, they had, they had pricked her and prodded her so much that they actually had an IV running into her head. That was the, the best place left. And they kind of covered it up with a little bow. And we were there with her parents just praying with them and spending time with them. I thought, you know, she's not aware of any of this. And the nurses told the mom and dad, she won't remember any of this. Don't worry. And the lady in the coffin yesterday certainly didn't remember any of what happened yesterday in the funeral service. You know, so, so there are times in our life that we have no awareness. But then there's this time somewhere between beginning life and ending life where we do have an awareness of our life. And we can ask the question, does my life matter? What am I doing with my life and does it matter and am I making a difference for God? And, and really you could probably answer that question in your life this week. This week, did you do anything in your life that mattered in the world, that mattered for God? Uh, you could ask that question last month. We just finished up a month in August. Have you, did you do anything in August? You could go back this year. Have you done anything this year yet that's mattered to God? And do we live our lives on purpose to make a difference for God? That's what I want to talk about today. And if you have your Bibles, I want you to open to Judges chapter 3. Now, if you don't have a Bible, our ushers are going to come down the aisle. And if you forgot your Bible, if you don't have a Bible, just wave at them. They'll give you one. If you don't have one, you can keep this one. Uh, if you do have it, you can use it. You can write in it. Just give it back, lay it on the table at the end of the service. But we want you to always have your Bible if you need one or to have a Bible if you need one. But Judges chapter 3, Judges is in the Old Testament. If you don't know where Judges is, just start at the beginning of the Bible. You're going to go past Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Then you'll get to Joshua and the next book is Judges. So it's just a little bit past the beginning. And I want to share with you what I refer to as one of the most messed up stories in the entire Bible. I mean, have, have, you ever, have you ever gone to a movie and you walk out and you didn't really enjoy it and you didn't really uh, hate it, you just, you just felt weird? You know, you just thought that, you know, it was odd. I don't know if that was a waste of time or not a waste of time. There was a little movie a few years back called AI. Remember that little weird movie where the kid was an alien or not? It was just weird. And you left just thinking that. It was weird. This is one of the weirdest stories in the Bible. And when you really understand the background of it, I mean, this is, this is a reality show of Scripture in Judges chapter 3. It's just, it's just wild. And it's a very enjoyable story to read. But as we get into this text, we find out that our lives have been designed, we have been designed to make a difference in the world. We have been designed to go and do something for God. And as we read through this text today, you're going to see that. I mean, Judges chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 12. We'll go through verse 30, a little bit of scripture reading. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen behind me so you can follow it along. But here we are in the book of Judges. We start in verse 12, and it says, Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. 
Because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and he attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. That's Jericho. Verse 14, the Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. That means they worked for him. Verse 15, so the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man. The son of Gera the Benjamite, the Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Moab. This is one of my very favorite parts of the Bible. Who was a very fat man. This is God telling the story. And God wants us to know that this guy's fat. This is only one of two people in Scripture that God calls fat. The other one is Eli. He's a high priest. And both of them God wants us to know. I mean, can you imagine having God tell you a story and God say, Now this dude, he was fat. I mean, really fat. He wants us to understand this guy's fat. Really fat. And I, I want to show you a picture of how fat I thought he was here in, here in a little bit. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. We ought to memorize that verse just for fun. Verse 18. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. At the idols near Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. The king said, Quiet. And all his attendants left him. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace. And he said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand. He drew his sword from his right thigh and he plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade which came out his back. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. Can't you almost hear the sound? You know, as he like sucked his hand out, and like, you know, the fat closed over the sword. I don't know that that's in the Hebrew, but that's what I read when I, when I read it. I don't even know where I am. Verse 23, here we go. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and he locked them. After he'd gone out, the servants came and he found the doors of the upper room locked and they said he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he didn't open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them and there they saw their Lord falling on the floor dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the idols and escaped to Syria. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they delivered him down, and taking possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to the Moab, they allowed no one to cross over. At that time they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not a man escaped. That day Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. You know, I believe that everyone in this room was created specifically to make a difference in the world. And I believe everyone in this room has been placed exactly where you are in life so you can make a difference in the world. And as we look at the narrative of Ehud here in Judges chapter 3, and if we were to go back and look at the narrative of Moses and Abraham and Gideon and anyone used by God, we see that God put him exactly where he wanted him so that he could use them in life. And I want to make a statement before we begin to really dig into this message today. I believe God has created everyone in this room to make a difference. And I believe he's placed you exactly where you are in life so you can serve him in a meaningful way. And as we read through the story of Ehud, we find out what I call the spiritual facts of life. 
And as we look at Israel several thousand years ago, we see the world is is very much the same way. As we open up the text in Judges chapter 3, we see first and foremost that for Israel, the world is messed up. And they need help. But for us today in the United States of America in 2011, I think we could say with confidence, no hyperbole, the world today is messed up. And it needs help. Our world is messed up and they need help. Can can I go as far as to say this? We in this room are probably messed up in some form or fashion. And we all need some type of help. If we were to get real honest, we live in a world that's messed up. We are people who are messed up. In verse 14, we learn that they were in bondage to Moab, who was a country that lived next door. In a few minutes, I'm going to show you a map so you, you can see where they were. And Karen, I don't know if you're in here, but I forgot my laser pointer. If you have yours, you can bring that up to me sometime while I'm speaking so I can show people. Here was the bondage they were in to Moab. Moab did not conquer all of Israel. Moab did not go in and kill everyone in Israel. Moab took one strategic city in Israel, city of Jericho. And here's what Moab did. From, from that city in Jericho, they kind of ruled and reigned. And here was the bondage that they put Israel in. They basically made Israel give them the best parts of the land. They, they taxed Israel to the point where Israel had almost nothing. That was the point. Here was Israel's bondage. They were not able to enjoy the fruits of their labor. They were not able to enjoy their life. They were not really in any danger probably of being killed. They were not in any danger of being tortured. Here was their bondage. Every day of their life that they lived, they lived, and they didn't get to benefit from all of their hard work, and they were just miserable people. And you know what? We live in a world that that is in similar bondage. We get up, we go to work, we come home. We we work every day with our sights set on retirement. And, you know, we we at some point in life, we, we grow up and we get money and we buy a big house. And right when we're finally able to afford that big house, the kids move out. So we sell the big house and we downsize. And when we finally have enough money to enjoy life, we're too old to enjoy it. And they put us in a nursing home and then we die. And, I mean, that's kind of like the course of life. It's pretty exciting, right? It's like... You know, bondage, bondage. I see no wonderful hope for my life, bondage. I just, I'm living life and paying someone else. In this case, it was Eglon, king of Moab. You know, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon, who's the wisest man who ever lived, said this. He said, the point of life is to enjoy it, to eat and drink and be merry. That's the point of life. The point of life is to enjoy this life. To sit around a dinner table with your family and eat and drink and be happy. Yet so few of us, even people who, who feel like their life is balanced and together, would refer to themselves as truly happy, truly satisfied, truly loving life. We feel like we're in bondage. And man, you look at the world that we live in and there's all kinds of bondage. You know, I looked up some statistics this week on the U.S. Census Bureau. Do you know that in the United States of America there are 12 million alcoholics? 12 million alcoholics in the U.S.A. There are 7 million binge drinkers between the ages of 12 and 20. 12 and 20 in the United States. So obviously there's a bondage problem to alcohol here in the United States. Do you know the United States has more people in prison than any other country in the world? 2.3 million people in the United States prison right now. More than any other country in the world. And there's 7.5 in the prison system on probation, etc. in a halfway house. 7.5 million people in the United States... That have, that have at one point been locked up from probably some type of bondage. 15,000 murders every year in the United States. Over a quarter million cases of rape reported every year in the United States. 
12 million people right now are unemployed or unable to find a full-time job. About 7 million absolutely unemployed, don't have any work. 5 million who aren't employed in what they've been trained to do and are working a part-time job to get by. Bondage. Over 1 million children are abused in some way every year in America. 1 million children. Bondage. One in three people in the world will get cancer in their lifetime. Bondage. And listen, this is in America, the greatest country in the world. And we live in a world that that has bondage. We live in a world that's messed up. If you haven't admitted that yet, you need to admit that to yourself. Our world is messed up and our world needs help. And that's just worst-case scenario issues, violent crime and addictions and, and abuse and sicknesses. How about all the people that are healthy and not addicted and not in prison, but they're just miserable? The stress and the strain of their life has just flat worn them out. They're like the crowd Jesus called to him in Matthew chapter 11 when he said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. All of you who are stressed out and worn out, I can help you. We live in a world that's messed up. And we live in a world that, that needs help. And Ehud lived in a world that was messed up. For 18 years they've been in bondage. And they needed someone to rise up and do something. They needed someone to help. And you know what? Ehud said, I can do something. You know, we look at what's going on in America and you say, there's no way we can fix everything that's going on. And you're right. But I love what Mother Teresa said. Mother Teresa said, if you look at the masses, you'll feel compelled to do nothing. But if you look at the one, you can help. And that's what our church has to do. We can't fix the world, but we might be able to fix one. We can't fix the world, but we can buy school supplies for 25 kids. We can't fix the world, but we can buy bicycles for 40 pastors in the Sudan. We can't fix the world, but we can support orphans in India and Romania. We can do what we can do. And hope it's something. And that's what Ehud was in the position to do. Ehud couldn't fix the world, but he could do something. We need to understand the world is messed up and it needs help. But guess what? You can help. You can help. You've been created to help. Fact number two, if we look at the life of Ehud, we see that God has created you and he has placed you in life so that you can make a difference for him. He has specifically created you And he has placed you exactly where you are in life so you can make a difference. I don't know if you looked at the message title this week, but it's it's kind of weird, actually. If you got it in an email, you might have thought, what what is Christian talking about? The message title is God knows what hand you write with. And you say, that's weird, you know. Uh, Why do you say that? Because Ehud was probably the only man in the world that could have done the thing that he did in fact, number two, he was basically Israel's Jack Bauer, which makes me really respect him, like a, a trained assassin going to kill a terrorist president. I love this. But the, the first thing we find out about Ehud is that Ehud, it, a weird fact, right? I mean, let me ask you this. What hand was Abraham, right or left? Don't know. What hand was Moses, right or left? How about Jesus, right or left? We don't know. Ehud's one of the only people in the Bible we're told what hand he is. Now, he's from a tribe of kind of what became left-handed assassins. But God needs us to know that Ehud is left-handed because God needed a left-handed man to do the job that Ehud was going to do. So he was specifically created to be used by God. I'm going to tell you why it was so important that he was left-handed in a minute. But not only created specifically, he was placed specifically in the job that he was in. His job was to carry tribute. Say, what is that? He worked for the IRS. He collected taxes from the people of Israel and he carried them to... Eglon, the fat guy from Moab. That, that was Ehud's job. Knock on door, collect the tribute, the tax money, and carry it to Eglon. Ehud, as a left-handed man, as someone who had access to Eglon, king of Moab, 
was probably the only man in the world who could do what he did. And you say, why is that? Because of the security systems of the day. No one was going to let anyone get near the president of a country who was armed, which meant that a right-hand man was out of the question. Now, if you think back some 3,000, 3,500 years ago, you will obviously understand that there were not metal detectors in the book of Judges. There weren't scan machines so that they could tell if he was carrying a knife in the book of Judges. Here was their pat-down policy. A right-handed man, which most of the world is, would carry a sword on his left hip because, you know, a sword, if it's any length at all, you can't carry on the same side because your arm's not long enough to get it out. So a right-handed man would carry a sword on his left hip, and if he was going to go to battle, he would take that sword out of his left hip and he would go to battle. So the security systems of the day, when you came in to pay tribute to a king, if you were from an enemy country, you would come in and they would pat down your left side. Tap the outside of the hip, nothing there. Inside the leg, nothing there. He's clean. But a left-handed man didn't keep his knife on his left leg. He kept it on his right leg. You see, if he wasn't left-handed, he probably couldn't have been qualified to do this job. But because he was left-handed... He had a secret place to store the weapon. He had his weapon on the side that they weren't even going to check, and the radar detector was not going to go off when he walked through it. So Ehud, because he's left-handed, has an opportunity to sneak a weapon in, and because he pays tribute, he has an opportunity to see the king face-to-face, not only to see him face-to-face, but to see him face-to-face privately, which is a really wild thing. Now, let me ask you this question. How have you been created? And where have you been placed to make a difference? I believe you live where you live because there's somebody around your geography of your home that God intends for you to reach. I I believe it that clearly. I believe you work where you work. And you may hate your job. Most people do, unfortunately. But I believe you work where you work. Because there's someone at your job that if you would open up your eyes and say, wait a minute, God created me to make a difference, and there is someone here I'm supposed to make a difference for. You work where you work because God has somebody that sits at the cubicle next to you or that you carpool with or that you sit by at lunch every day, and they've been waiting for someone to tell them about Jesus. And they don't even know it, but God put you in their life so that you could do that. You see, God created Ehud left-handed so that he could carry a sword into the king. He gave him the job of somebody who carries tribute so they could see him face to face. And there are no accidents and there are no coincidences in life with God. Maybe you were laid off from the job that you were laid off from because you didn't know it, but your marriage was getting ready to fail. And by being home, you reconnected with a husband or wife. No accidents with God. You were created the way you were created. You were placed where you were placed to make the most difference for God that you can make. And Ehud was getting ready to take advantage of this opportunity. Now, unfortunately, as we look at the Bible and as we look at the book of Judges, fact number three, while most people, I I say most, maybe it's many, complain about their circumstances, very few do anything to change their circumstances. And even less people expect anyone to do anything to change their circumstances. No one at your work is probably expecting you to talk to them about Jesus or invite them to church. They've not even considered that, unless you do it all the time. You know, most people will complain about the situation of their life, but they won't do anything about it. How long have the Israelites been in bondage to Eglon, king of Moab? Eighteen years. Eighteen years. The only bondage you and I have been in in 18 years is the, the education system that we, you know, started in and didn't get out of until we were 18. I mean, we, we wouldn't know how that felt. And you're telling me there's nobody like Ehud that at year five said, I'm sick of this. 
I'm going to kill him. At year 10, no one said, let's go to war. At year 12, no one said, let's do... At year 15, I mean, nobody planned anything. What did it say? For 18 years, it said they cried out to God. Well, that's a great plan. We'll just wait on God to do something. You know that God does things through people? And some of you might be praying for... You might have been praying for someone at your work for an entire year. Oh, God, let them find you, let them find you. And God's saying, well, why don't you tell them about me? You're right there. God, I pray for this family across the street and they really need Jesus. Well, why don't you invite them to church? That's why you live in that house. You see, the Israelites complain, 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 but nobody did anything about it. And you know what? Even when someone did step up to do something, the people of Eglon, they had gotten so used to the Israelites just being bums and doing nothing for themselves that they didn't even worry that somebody from a foreign country was locked in a room with their king. Now think about that. So Ehud goes to the palace. He's got all his tribute. He walks into the palace. They give him the pat down. You can imagine he's sweating bullets, right? Just praying that they don't tap him on the wrong leg. They, they pat him down. There's nothing there. He walks in. They deliver the tribute. And then Ehud says what, what someone who would pay tribute to a king would say 3,500 years ago and probably what still happens today. They would, they would pay the kings a little extra on the side. They would give them a bribe. Then the governor of, of Illinois or somebody just, you know, just going to get nailed for this and get sent to jail. I mean, always looking to collect a little money on the side. So Ehud gets ready to leave and he says, King, hey, I need to tell you something privately. And that would normally mean I want to slip you a little extra cash. So Eglon says, clear the room. Ehud's got to tell me something. So all the Israelite servants leave. And all the Moabite servants leave, and they they actually lock Ehud in the room with their king. Now tell me if these Moabites thought Ehud was going to do anything to change the circumstances. They obviously weren't concerned. They didn't believe. Tell me if the Israelites thought he was going to do anything. They probably didn't know. They didn't believe that someone actually had the guts to step out and do something to change their circumstance. But, man, Ehud was getting ready, I mean, to plunge a knife into, into this old boy's belly and let him die so Ehud says I have a message from the gods which normally if you weren't going to pay them you you proclaim some kind of blessing on their life so this big fat king it says he begins to raise up Ehud maybe maybe needed him to raise up just to get a good shot at his vital organs and he raised up and boy Ehud took that knife that dagger and and he dug it in and the fat closed over and it poked us back and and it says in one of the translations of the bible that his bowels spilled out all over the room can imagine the scenario. It's important that you know that because of, of what it allowed Ehud to do. So Ehud stabs the guy. The fat closes over his hand. He pulls his hand out. And I, you know, I don't know if he had to struggle. To pull, I don't know how heavy the fat was, but he pulled his hand out. Right? There's just bowel stuff, which you know that like everywhere, right? The door's locked behind him, and Ehud jumps over the balcony, out the door, and he's gone. And three minutes go by, and five minutes go by, and ten minutes go by. And the Moabite servants are thinking, what do you think he's doing in there? Should we check on him? So they go to rattle the door, and as they rattle the door, they, they, they smell the bowel substance. You know, they're knocking, king, king. And someone says, Psh, you smell that? He's using the bathroom. I don't know why they thought he would use the bathroom with Ehud in there, but they, they did. They thought, you know, they smelled what was going on, and they said, you know, Leave him alone. He's, he's using the bathroom. 
So they back away. Now, we find out he's in the, on his roof in the cool private chamber. There were, there were two chambers on a roof that would be used for two things in kind of the ancient Near Eastern Palestinian literature. You'd go up there to take a nap. You, you see David in his reign walking in the cool of the night on his roof because there's no air conditioning and it's kind of hot in the Middle East. So you'd go up there to just cool down and take a nap. But they also had something on the roof where they could relieve themselves and use the restroom. No indoor plumbing at the time. So as they go to these cool chambers, they, you know, it's, it's natural for them to think, well, maybe he's just using the bathroom. Smells like he's using the bathroom. The door's locked. That makes sense. And as they wait, and it said, you know, when they finally figured out they'd waited too long. My question is, how long is that? How long do you wait when you think someone important is using the bathroom before you go and disturb them? You know, five minutes, ten minutes, thirty minutes, forty minutes, an hour? However long it was, we know when they finally decided no one takes this long to use the bathroom. They opened the door, and there was their king dead on the floor. You see, nobody expected Ehud to do anything. They let him commit murder and get away with it because they were convinced, like the world today is convinced, Nobody can do anything to change the situation. It's always been like this. It's always going to be. We can't do anything to change it. The world's always been this way. It's just getting worse. Just need Jesus to come back. Maybe we just need us to bring more Jesus into this world. Maybe we can help a little bit. Ehud said, I'm going to help, and, and he did help. Now, when you look at being in bondage for 18 years, I want to show you something that's, that's going to lead to where we're going. Go ahead and put that map up there if you haven't already. In this little pointer, we'll see which one's red. That's red. Can you all see that? I can't either. That's really good, isn't it? Anyway, (laughs) I'll point to it. See Moab right here? Moab was just across the Dead Sea from Israel. And I tell you about the messed up story. Moab as as a country has a very interesting beginning. How many of you have heard of Abraham? He had a nephew named Lot, right? You've heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot and his family escaped. Except his wife died in the mess. So Lot goes up to the mountains. He's with his two daughters in the mountain. And one of his daughters gets this freaked out idea. They're in the mountains with dad. Everyone they know is dead. And she said, you know what? We're never going to have kids. All the men we know are dead. Anyone who could have been our boyfriend is dead. Mom's dead. And here's her plan. I told you this is a Jerry Springer show. But this is the Bible. She said, let's get dad drunk. Have sex with him so we can have kids. Say, What? Yeah, it really happened. You can go back and read it. So they get dad drunk, and the older sister sleeps with him, and she has a son, and she names her son Moab. You know what Moab translates? You know what the word Abba means? Father in the New Testament, Jesus cried it. Moab literally means my dad. She named her kid my dad. If it's not sick and twisted enough to get your dad drunk and sleep with him, to have a child that you name my dad. Can you imagine him at school? What's your name, my dad? Why? Well, my mom had sex with her dad, so she named me my dad. It's very odd. So then the younger daughter does the same thing, and she has a son, and his name is Ammon, which means son of my father. And these two countries, they hate Israel. So you see Moab there, and then you see Ammon. They kind of cross the river and live in their own world. But they hate Israel. They hate Israel to this day. Ammon, now the, the, Ammon is now a country called Jordan, the capital of its Amman. Moab is kind of wrapped around in, in what we know as Saudi Arabia today. This, this area still hates Israel, and it all goes back to all this Old Testament stuff. But they come in, and, and they attack just, just kind of north of the, of the Dead Sea there. They attack a city called Jericho. They take it over, and they live there and make Israel pay taxes to them. And for 18 years, they do this. And Ehud finally said, had enough. 
If no one else will do something, I will, and I may die doing it, but I'm going to try my best. Now, Eglon, very fat man. How fat was Eglon? Just, just so you can think. You know, got a 24-inch dagger that goes in his belly, sticks out his back. So if you just study the circumference of what was that, he probably wore a pair of pants that would be 125 to 150 inches around the waist. That's big. As I thought about this, the thing that I could think of in my generation was maybe Jabba the Hutt. Remember Jabba the Hutt from Star Wars? Or, or a sumo wrestler. This is probably what Eglon looked I mean, he was fat, and that guy is dressed. Barely, but, but he is dressed. This is what Eglon looked like. I just want you to have a picture. This, this guy was big, and he was fat. And Ehud said, I'm going to kill him. And Ehud said, if no one else will make a difference, I will. And Ehud decides that he's going to kill him. Moabite servants didn't think he'd do it. The Israelite servants didn't think he'd do it. But he did. And here's what happened when he did. Here's why it's so important for you to step out in life and do something. Fact number four. After 18 years of everybody crying but nobody doing anything, as soon as one person stepped out to make a difference, other people followed him. And what you need to understand in life is if you step out to make a difference, Dad, if you step out to make a difference, your family will follow. If you step out to make a difference, other Christians in your world will follow. I promise you that. Because after 18 years of doing nothing... Ehud went back to his people and said, he's dead. I killed him. Now will you help me in this bondage? And they did. Now, here's the interesting thing that I didn't even realize until this week when I was studying the the geography of it. I mean, you talk about the guts of Ehud. Go to the next map, if if you would. Jericho, you can see it right there, just kind of north of, of the Dead Sea, right north of Moab. You can see just to the left there, the city Jericho. Ehud went down to Jericho, and he killed the king. And then I thought from there that he went straight to Moab and, and crossed the river and destroyed Moab. But he didn't. He killed the king, and then he went back into Israel. Went all the way back up to Ephraim and said, he's dead. Who will help me? And he got an entire army that said, well, if he's dead, if, if you really did what you said, if you made a difference, we'll help now. And there's a lot of people who are waiting to follow a leader. They won't lead, but they'll follow. And when Ehud said he's dead, come help me, boy, they came descending out of the mountains and they changed their world. You know, I believe as I've studied now for the last 12 years doing ministry, I believe that it's time in our world, in our country, I believe it's time to make a difference for Jesus Christ. And I believe that to do that, at least in my generation, that we've got to do church a little bit differently. We've got to just have a, a few different values and a little different schedule, and we've got to drive people where they are. It's why in, in two weeks when we have our grand opening and we invite the entire community, we're doing a series called Rethink Church. It's nothing more than a verse-by-verse study of the book of James. But the thought is, is it time to do church differently? Is it time for church to stop being about how many people come on Sunday and instead how many people go out and make a difference during the week? Is it time to focus outside instead of inside? And I think it is. And and what I'm looking for in our church is people who say, if no one else will go, like Ehud, I will. I believe I've been created to make a difference. I believe God has placed me in a situation to make a difference. And I'm in. I'm going to do something. And I don't even know what that is. I may sing. I may play. I may give. I may serve. I may help. I may tell. I don't know what it is. But I'm in. I believe God has created me and placed me in the world to make a difference, and I'm in.
You know, our mission statement is pretty simple. We exist to see people far from God become passionate Christians whose lives make a difference in the world. That's it. We want to see people who aren't where they need to be spiritually get where they need to be spiritually and then go out and live for God. That's it. That's what we want to do. And, you know, as I, as I thought back to this week, starting with a little baby in a hospital, brand new, her entire life in front of her. And as I ended at a, at a casket yesterday in North Kansas City, her entire life behind her. You know, I kind of thought from point A to point B, is there a plan to get there and to really make a difference in that interval? Do you have one? Because you've been created to make a difference. You've been placed in your world where you are to make a difference. And I'm telling you, I, I believe God wants to and will use every one of you. Now, the first step to making a difference spiritually is becoming a Christian. And if you've never stopped your life and recognized that God loves you, that your, your life doesn't measure up to his perfectness, but it, that he'll forgive you, he'll clean you from the inside out and he'll change you, you need to start your spiritual journey by becoming a Christian. Ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins and become your Savior. But then get busy living life for him. That's the way it works. Will you bow your heads with me this morning? Every head is bowed and every eye is closed. And we always begin the invitation of every message the exact same way. God loves you. And he desires for you to begin your spiritual journey with him. He wants to spend the rest of your life with you and all of eternity with you. The Bible says that. And if you're here today and you've never become a Christian, you've never asked Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sin and to become your Savior, and you've never committed to follow Him with your life, you need to do that. And you can do that this morning. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're in the room and you've never become a Christian, but today you need to, you need forgiveness, you need to be changed, you need a new commitment, then just pray this prayer where you're seated. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. You don't have to pray this out loud, just pray it in your heart. God is listening. Pray this prayer. Dear God, I need you in my life. I want you in my life. I want to make a difference for you in my life. But I need to become a Christian. So I ask you to forgive me of my sin, to cleanse me from the inside out, and to begin to change me so that I can live for you and make a difference. Thank you for saving me, forgiving me. Now use me. In Jesus' name, heads are still bowed and eyes are still closed. If you just prayed that prayer all over this room with nobody looking around, please, would you just slip your hand up today and say, yeah, I just prayed that prayer. Today I became a Christian. Just slip your hand up quick and down quick. I wonder how many are here today that would say, like the Israelites of Judges chapter 3, man, I realize the world is messed up. Maybe my world is messed up. And I've been complaining for a long time, but I've not really done anything to make a difference. And here's what I can say today. I'm in. And I, I don't even know what that means, but here's my prayer today. I want to make a difference with my life. And I will begin to open my eyes to that reality, and I will begin to see what God wants me to do. I'm in. I believe God wants me to make a difference. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if you believe that's you, you believe God wants you to make a difference, would you just lift your hand up right now? I believe God wants me to make a difference. You can put your hands down. And God, I pray for those who raise their hand. Because you've connected something today mentally to their heart that we need to connect to their feet in their life now. That they were created to go and make a difference. God, I pray that you will allow them to do that. Help them to open their eyes to their neighbors. Help them to open their eyes to the people they work with. Help them to open their eyes to their family. 
and help them begin to live their life to make a difference. God, we need you in this world. But you've placed us here to help with some of the bad stuff. And Lord, we realize we've been created, we've been placed to do those things. Help us to do those things. We ask these things in Jesus' name this morning. And everyone said, Amen. Just quickly before our ushers come.